Let's turn together to 2 Peter chapter 1. This morning we'll read verses 12 through 21. An apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is now in prison in Rome, very likely near execution. Last week when we opened the Scriptures, we saw this, this summons to make every effort to be all the more diligent to confirm the calling and election. In fact, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you and I are to make the best use of all of the divine power that God has given to us. We're supposed to grow in our sanctification. We're supposed to move on towards perseverance. A text that we are about to read this morning says, you have good reason to give your whole life to the pursuit of godliness. Why? Because God has spoken, and that is the very thing that we believe about the text we're about to read. God has spoken in His Word. We'll pick up chapter 1, we'll read verses 12 through 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Oh Lord, we, we do now such a, a thing which seems so ordinary. We, having read a, a pages of Scriptures, we... Now hear a man speak, but it is not a man speaking. Uh, You have spoken in your word, and so now we just simply pray that you would give to us clarity and illumination through the ministry of your spirit, so that you would show us what you have said to your people. God, moreover, we ask that you would be willing to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Read through Second Peter in one sitting. It'll take you less than 10 minutes. And if you do that, I suspect you will be quickly struck by the, the deep dive into really heavy, deep waters. It's almost a bit startling to read through. His phrases are, are blunt, like a man who's at the end of his life, he's pulling no punches. And he is absolutely certain that he's got to make this vocabulary bold and clear. And you can really tell his comments are squarely fixed at certain false teaching. 
false teaching that sounded like this. You've been saved from your sins. Brother, you're fine. You don't have to worry about what you do. It's the Spirit that matters. What I mean is what kind of person you are on the inside. The body? Well, just do whatever you want to do. Do what feels good. And the reason that I'm sure that's what he's pointing to is when you fast forward in the book, chapter 2, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Chapter 2, verse 19, they promise freedom, but are themselves slaves of corruption. Chapter 3, verse 2, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Peter says you can't feed your flesh on sinful desires without your mind and heart and spirit becoming ensnared. Given the world that you and I live in today, given the way that truth is, is twisted, the way that anything sexual is permissible as long as you are not intolerant, this is a really clear, helpful, applicable word. Because right now, your moral compass and your spiritual, moral, sexual ethic is being barraged by lying voices. And you say, nobody's lying to me. Perhaps you, Eric, are the one who is twisting the truth. But no. In fact, the TV, the internet, social media twists what is true and says, here's the thoughts that you should hold. Here's the values that you should treasure about your desires, what you deserve, what will fulfill you. And Peter says, Christian, listen, God provides the way of salvation. So then reject the lies and listen to the Lord. We're going to use three points to break our passage down. The reason for repetition, number two, myths or majesty. And then thirdly, the issue of interpretation. We'll start with the reason for repetition. Therefore, verse 12, it's, it's actually pointing back to everything that we've studied over the last two sermons. Christ has given his people everything that they need for life and godliness. You've been called to the excellence of God. Peter says, because of who you are in Christ, there is no other way to live than by reflecting the character of the one who saved you. So Peter said, add virtues to your faith that you've been given. That's the one way to, to live an effective, fruitful life. It's actually the one way to keep you from, from falling away from the Lord. You've been saved by the blood of Christ. Spiritual growth is the path. In fact, it's the only path that leads to eternal life. And it is such a matter of life and death, says Peter, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and you're established in the truth that you have. Have you ever wondered why professional athletes in individual sports still have to have coaches? Like, why does the professional tennis player, the professional golfer or figure skater or boxer need a coach? Because even when you know what to do, even in, when you're established in the foundations of your sport, you do not always remember what to do in any given moment. It always helps to have another set of eyes to take you back to the fundamental principles that you already know. That's actually what Peter's doing right here. He's writing to Christians, to be sure, all of whom know the gospel 
all of whom know the importance of growing in Christ-like character. So then why the, the repetition? Because even when folks know the truth, the main struggle is not actually to figure out what is true, but rather how to live life in light of what's true. That's not to say that some of you haven't had continuing, ongoing growth in knowledge. Certainly, Peter has just talked about that. Some of you have even had light bulb moments in your adult life as you studied the Scriptures. But where God gave you some clarity, perhaps, on matters of doctrine. But Peter recognizes a general principle. When you are 20 years old, you might be trying to figure out what is true. And yet the 30-year-old and 50-year-old and 70-year-old believer is still trying to figure out how to live in light of what's true, how to gain traction, how to get rid of besetting sins. How do I love others? How do I learn contentment when nothing around me cooperates? How do I learn to trust God with the the money He's given to me? How do I surrender my anxious heart? How do I trust the Lord when circumstances make it so that it's very hard to trust a God that I can't see? How do I grow in Christ? Once you get the fundamental principles of Christian Christianity, the issue is not whether you know what is true The issue is whether you will practice what you already know. Many of you are not short on knowledge or power. You say, well, I think I'm short on power. And Peter said in verse 3, no, there's no shortage of power. God has given His divine power for all things pertaining to eternal life and godliness. Could it be that you are not short on power, but short on willingness to utilize the power that you've been given? Short on willingness to make every effort, short on willingness to be diligent, to confirm your calling and election. When I read a text like this, I go, yeah, that's actually the problem here. Could you imagine why anybody would go to seminary and spend three and a half, four years studying the Scriptures? Isn't it so simple that you wouldn't have to do that? There is no shortage of knowledge. There's no shortage of knowledge in your head. Where we struggle is this. And so we come remembering that Peter knows what we have figured out. And that is, he has to give repetition. Why Peter? Why this way? You remember the Peter who's laying on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane? just a few feet away from Jesus. Jesus the Lord goes ahead. He's praying to Almighty God to give him strength to stand beneath the coming crucifixion. He's he's pleading and he's saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus walks back over to Peter. He walks back over to the other disciples and he has to wake them up from sleeping. Y'all, please wake up and pray. Your spirit is willing and your flesh is weak. I suspect Peter never forgot how weak the flesh is. Yeah. My spirit was willing. 
My flesh was so weak. So then the answer, verse 13, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Stir you up. It's actually the exact same word that's used for rouse from sleeping. Peter does for us what Jesus did to him in Gethsemane. He issues a a wake-up call. You must be roused from your slumber. You have to stand up, be vigilant, so that you will remain on the path of life. That's what so often happens, isn't it? We just fall asleep spiritually. And so the coach of that professional golfer uses these little reminders to help the athlete take what he knows and apply it to his ability. It's not that he didn't know it. It's not even that he can't do it. Reminders help us connect the dots so that with practice, his knowledge and his ability causes him to fuel his growth in that golf game. The same is true spiritually. Reminders help you take what you know and apply it to your ability. What God shows you in his word and through his spirit must be coupled with what he's already given you by way of power. That is your capacity to pursue growth. See why repetition is so important. You might have noticed Peter uses this word for body. It's actually tent. Some of your translations will pick that up. Christ has clearly told Peter that his death is at hand. And we don't know if, if he's recently received that by way of prayer or if he's thinking back on John chapter 21 when he said, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. We don't know for sure. But Peter makes this point. I'm about to fold up my tent and go home. And before I go, I will do two things. I'll remind you and I'll write it down so that even after I'm gone, you will not forget. There's so many competing voices. So much tendency in the human heart to fall asleep spiritually. When it comes to your own stumblings into sin, when it comes to the very idols that consume your heart and your thoughts, how do I reject the lies? How do I listen to the Lord? Well, Peter and the New Testament writers have actually given us a way so that we might be constantly reminded of the truth. It's the written word of God. And it was written so that you and I would learn to treasure it and pray through it and meditate on it and memorize it. So that when in the midst of temptation, we might be able to speak truth to ourselves. Reject the lies. Listen to the Lord. That's the reason for repetition. Now let's look at the issue of myth or majesty. I want to point out for you that when Christianity moved through the Greco-Roman culture, one of the most common obstacles that the church faced was, was the danger of people wrongly classifying the Christian gospel in the same way that they thought about their Greek and Roman gods. Well, they're stories, but are they true? Well, they're more like myths. 
myths that teach us principles. And so Jesus' miracles or His healings or His resurrection, well, it's on par with the mythology of Greek culture. Most of you have read somewhere in your education that Zeus is the king of the gods in Greco-Roman culture, that he's got a an illegitimate son named Hercules. You've read stories about King Midas, Narcissus, Mercury, Aphrodite, all those stories which were woven throughout Greek and Roman culture. Christianity is entirely built on historical fact. And it was essential that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were not casually and thoughtlessly lumped in with the myths of all of these localized religions. When false teachers come into the churches, they begin to try to influence those local churches. They always do it by denying the resurrection. And therefore, if you deny the resurrection, then there's no such thing as a second coming. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that that's part of the lie that's being spoken. And of course, if there's no second coming, then there's no judgment. And if if there is no judgment, then there's no need to live a godly, sober life. There's no reason to live in in expectation of His coming. You can see how this could happen, don't you? Mount Olympus is an actual place in Greece But the educated people did not think of those stories as historical events. They taught lessons, but they do not radically alter your morality. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He points out that Greek understanding of uh, of history is cyclical, meaning uh, alternating between light and dark ages or golden ages and dark ages, in the same way that seasons kind of repeat themselves. Whereas the Hebrew understanding is linear, The Bible testifies to events that happened in time and space. The Greeks and Romans didn't care whether their gods really existed. They were myths, and they knew they were myths. So many of you and I were trained to think, well, they believe this stuff. That's just not true. They thought they taught points. Sproul's point makes sense of every other religion of the entire world. And you saw that when we studied Exodus. Various gods that no one ever saw doing weird and unpredictable things in the creation order. And man-made gods are always designed to promote the natural desires of the human flesh. What a shocker. How did they ever come up with these sexual rituals? Why did they gorge themselves? Why did they consume mass amounts of alcohol to worship their gods? Because they are man-made. The Christian gospel proclaims the one true God entered time and space, born of a virgin to redeem sinners from those earthly, fleshly desires that actually lead to death. Peter says, I'm about to pick up my tent, about to go home. And I will not fold up this tent over a myth. Christ and his resurrection is a historical fact. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
When he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, all three of us, Peter, me, James, John, we actually heard the voice of God. An eyewitness to the life and ministry of Christ. Peter speaks about power. And it's a word from which we get our word dynamite. And then he uses this word parousia to explain the coming. Outside the Bible, that is always used to explain the return of a king. A king coming back to his conquered land. But those two words in the Bible have to always be understood together. Here's why. Because one of the major tenets of the Christian faith is what Peter says in verse 16. Christ will return in power. It is a historical fact. And it is not only because Jesus said it, it is not only because he promised it, but because we have seen ourselves a glimpse of a foretaste of his coming. In fact, three of the gospel writers record the events that Peter just described. It's Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. And in each of those accounts, Jesus says something very important just before he's transfigured. And it's a phrase that people have often read out of context. And when they read it out of context, they're confused. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And out of context, people read that. And they go, what? Did Jesus think he was coming back more soon than he has? No, that's not what he said. Has he already returned? No, that's not what he said. All three gospel writers, with no break in the narrative, tell us it was either six or eight days later, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were standing, talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, the transfiguration was what Jesus spoke of. Some standing here did see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. He wasn't talking about his second coming. He's talking about a momentary glimpse, a foretaste of his majesty and power with which he would come again. For just a few moments, God removed the veil of his humanity, which is why collectively the apostles taught the return of Christ. They taught the bodily resurrection. They taught Christ as judged based on what they saw and heard. All of the moral teachings of the Scripture lead to a transformed life, and they're all rooted in historical facts. Not only did a man named Jesus live, not only did he walk on water, not only did he heal the sick, feed thousands, turn water into wine, but be sure, he was also crucified, died, and was buried 
and he rose again from the dead. And he was seen by more than 500 people during the 40 days after the resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. Peter says, look, we were eyewitnesses of that majesty, of that glory of Almighty God. The Jesus we walked with, the Jesus we ate with and touched and knew, that Jesus is the coming judge. And I'm telling you, says Peter, based on what we saw on that mountain, you don't want to treat him like a myth. Christ is returning. And his return will be powerful, glorious, majestic. Take what you know. Add godly virtue to your faith. Walk this path of growth. Because this is no myth. I saw his majesty. And this Jesus is no one to be trifled with. I suspect, speaking to an audience that says, yeah, we agree. Christianity is based on historical facts. Why are you still belaboring this point? Surely no one confuses the majesty of Jesus with a myth. Because Peter's message was not to correct thought, but action. Eyewitness testimony is helpful. But this isn't written down as a defense of the Christian faith. Peter is writing to Christians, not to people who think that Jesus is a myth, but to those who are tempted to slip into living as if he is a myth. He's writing to the likes of you and me. What do I mean? Every single deliberate action of sin requires a shift of thought. Almost like a switch in your brain to suddenly shift from the message of the cross and all of the implications of obedience, a life surrendered to the king, to the category of myth. What do I mean? Myths are stories that don't have any direct impact on your life. That They might teach you a lesson. But I wonder if some of us are not treating Christian gospel as a myth. A story that you can hold at a distance without any personal transformation. Perhaps you have areas of your life that you, you want to keep Christ as a myth. So that no implications of the cross would ever confront your specific areas of sin. Somebody can hear this in this church, but they would not let Christ address the bitterness of their heart. Another refuses to make every effort to control his or her tongue. Someone else thinks to themselves, I'm doing so much for the church, I don't need to give. Another person is not willing to surrender his or her fleshly desires carried away with lust, whether it's lust of food or drink or material possessions or or sensuality. That's the kind of stuff Peter's writing about. There are lots of ways to practically live as if Christ is a myth. The text says, do not miss his majesty. Reject the lies. Listen to the Lord, the reason for repetition, the myths or majesty, and finally, the issue of interpretation. Um, What I'm about to tell you is not new at all. Liberal scholars have often said Jesus' disciples thought that he was risen from the dead. They were so grieved that they were carried away with false hope. They weren't lying. They were delusional. And Peter anticipates that, which is why he says what he says in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention one of the older ESV translations even, even says it, and maybe the NIV does too. 
We have something even better than what we saw. We have the written word, which is what he's talking about. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. God's written word is superior because it was tested by centuries, and then it was fulfilled in Christ. And so in that sense, the transfiguration that we saw is simply what the Old Testament was saying all along. And then this second part of verse 19 has been called the thesis statement of the whole letter. Look at it. Pay attention to the word as to a lamp shining in the dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the word of God was written and then the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Peter says, pay attention to that light as it shines into your heart, as it exposes your sin. Think about this. If you were standing in a cave, no light, and somebody suddenly turned on a flashlight... The only way that you could avoid the effects of that flashlight would be to cover your eyes, turn the opposite direction, and walk away from it. This letter is written so that God's people would not turn their eyes away from the light and walk away. Because if God is the source of all truth and He shines His light into the dark places of your heart, you must pay attention to what He shows you in His Word about Himself and about your own heart because it's true. The phrase, the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart, it's Peter's way of talking about the day of the Lord's coming. It is really Old Testament passage, I mean Old Testament language, but it's coupled with Revelation 22 where Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. You see, the coming day of Jesus' return is spoken of like like it's the sun coming up. Can you imagine a more beautiful picture of your future destiny in Christ? Peter, why is the written word better? Verse 20, because no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Most scholars believe that the false teaching that Peter writes to correct was a misleading argument about the issue of interpretation. I mean, they weren't arguing that the apostles received God's word. The origin wasn't the thing in question. They were doing what modern people do. They were saying, well, that's Peter's interpretation. That's Paul's interpretation. We have another interpretation. What do people say today? They say, well, that was written for another time, another place. We have, an, uh, we have to advance our interpretation of the Scriptures to fit the day in which we, we live. Peter says, no, there's one origin and there's one interpretation. The origin of God's Word is God Himself. The only correct interpretation of God's Word is the one that God gives to us Himself. The apostles wrote and taught because they were appointed by Jesus for this very purpose. I'm talking about the doctrine of divine inspiration. When Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David wrote, they understood some of what they were writing because, of course, they were carried along by the Spirit. But as the Old Testament was written, interpretation wasn't left in the hand of the guy with the pen. 
God carried them along by the Holy Spirit. He used their vocabulary. He used their senses. He used their efforts. But God was speaking through them. You know why that matters? Because truth never changes. And it cannot be reworked by interpretation. And Peter writes this letter. The scriptures he's talking about is primarily just the Old Testament. While the New Testament is God's providing of the interpretation of everything that was in the Old Testament through these New Testament writers in light of what God had already revealed in the person of Christ. But still, interpretation is not for the teacher himself. It's for God. So when you and I come to God's word in personal reading or in listening to sermons or during the week or or whether you come here on Sunday morning, we do not come to hear a man made of flesh interpret to you the scriptures. No, please don't come here for my interpretation of truth. We come to hear the unchangeable God speak. My job is to explain, but not to interpret. God has already interpreted His Word for us, which is why we say Scripture interprets Scripture. A faithful preacher or teacher explains the interpretation that God has given through His apostles, but He will not, He must not explain what He has found as a fresh interpretation. It's why the false teachers of Peter's day, it's why the false teachers of your day will try to gain a voice of authority, try to gain a voice to mislead people. Let me be really clear. The Bible is God's Word. It doesn't just contain God's Word. It doesn't just become meaningful to us in a way that it kind of could be like God's Word? No, it in fact is the Word of God written, which means that it is the only final authority over your life. And so in a world where people love terms like your truth, my truth, as if truth is relative, as if truth is open to interpretation, the Bible is not just your truth truth. It's the truth. It is not open to various thoughts or interpretations. It has one single meaning. Fresh interpretation throughout the history of the church has always been a deadly, powerful tool of manipulation in the hands of men. And it is wrong. Friends, in the written word and in the person of Christ, God has spoken. Reject the lies of the world. Listen to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak and have spoken in your word. We pray that you would give to your people the ears to hear that you would make us tender to your word in every way. And Father, we ask that you would send forth your word and accomplish the very things 
for which you desire to accomplish. Change us. Renew us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.